0: Welcome to Navarra Live, I'm Moira Lady MacLean, and tonight we are absolutely inundated with cover-ups. The government are being accused of a cover-up over the fact that they simply will not hand over Boris Johnson's unredacted WhatsApps to the COVID inquiry. And cover-ups over sexual misconduct in the media are also surfacing. More on those in a minute. Before we begin, we should warn you, our first story occasionally contains graphic descriptions of sexual harassment. Let's go to that now. British media is often described as a members club. It's hard to get into and what goes on inside remains mostly a secret. And new revelations about the handling of sexual misconduct claims against a Star Guardian columnist are not going to challenge that perception anytime soon. This is a story broken by Jane Bradley in the New York Times today. A British reporter had a big hashtag MeToo scoop. Her editor killed it. Seven women say that a star columnist groped them or made unwanted sexual advances. But Britain's news media has a complicated relationship with outing its own. Let's talk about that star columnist who is mentioned. This is Nick Cohen. Until January 2023, he'd spent 20 years as a heavyweight political columnist for The Observer, and he was a pretty powerful figure in British media. But in January of this year, he resigned from The Observer on, quote, health grounds. Now, Cohen's resignation followed an internal investigation by Guardian News Media, the Observer's parent company, into allegations that were made against Cohen of sexual misconduct. And Cohen's departure was reported by trade press, but received a rather muted reception by the rest of English media. There was no coverage of the matter in the likes of The Times, or The Telegraph, or The Independent, for whom Mr. Cohen has written. And there was certainly none in The Observer or its sister paper, The Guardian. The Financial Times also didn't cover the story of one of Britain's most prominent p- political columnists being accused of multiple instances of sexual misconduct. And the NYT thinks it can point to why. Bradley's article opens with this. Inside the financial newsroom this winter, one of its star investigative reporters, Madison Marriage, had a potentially explosive scoop involving another newspaper. A prominent left-wing columnist, Nick Cohen, had resigned from Guardian News and Media, and mismarriage had evidence that his departure followed years of unwanted sexual advances and groping of female journalists. But her investigation on Mr Cohen, which she hoped would begin a broader look at sexual misconduct in the British news media, was never published. The Financial Times' editor, Raoul khalif killed it, according to interviews with a dozen Financial Times journalists. Now, why did Raoul khalif Spike the story. According to the NYT report, it was because, quote, Mr Cohen did not have a big enough business profile to make him an FT story. Interesting. The NYT also includes this detail. Days after Miss Marriage's article was dropped, the newspaper ran an investigation into sexual harassment claims against a former TikTok manager. The next month, it ran 23 articles about sexual misconduct accusations inside Britain's business lobbying group. The FT covers sexual harassment stories within the likes of Westminster and the police, but when it comes to a media figure, that is just too far outside the realms of the paper's business brief, apparently. Now, the NYT story says that Cliff suggested the Nick Cohen story was run as an opinion piece instead, and it was filed as such, but then it was never published. Of course, the NYT scoop is media because it's a story about a story— The FT's failure to cover the accusations against Cohen is only the tip of the iceberg because the other aspect of the story that Madison Marriage was looking into was about allegations that Guardian top brass didn't take two decades' worth of direct reports and rumours about Cohen's behaviour seriously. This is again from the NYT. Miss Siegel former Guardian editorial assistant, recounted Mr. Cohen grabbing her bottom in the newsroom around 2001. Five other women described similar encounters at pubs from 2008 to 2015. One said Mr. Cohen had pressed his erection against her thigh and kissed her uninvited when they met to discuss her career. A seventh said Mr. Cohen had repeatedly offered to send her explicit photographs in 2018 while she worked as an unpaid copy editor for him. Mr. Cohen's reputation was widely known in the newsroom, according to 10 former colleagues, both male and female. One former colleague said she and other female journalists had used a different entrance to a pub to avoid being groped by him. Another woman said she had avoided the bar downstairs from the newsroom after Mr. Cohen grabbed her knee during work drinks. In 2018... One of the women who had accused Cohen of sexual misconduct met with The Guardian's managing editor, Jan Thompson, to, quote, report her experiences. Now, this is what the NYT says happened in that meeting. At the February 1st, 2018 meeting, Miss Siegel said that Miss Thompson responded by talking about the abuse that Mr. Cohen faced for his political views, according to the notes Miss Siegel wrote afterward. She described the meeting as a, quote, chaotic mess of defensiveness and attack. Now it wasn't until 2022, after Lucy Siegel went public with her allegations on social media, that The Guardian launched an official investigation into Mr. Cohen. And what were the results of that investigation? A confidentiality agreement between the newspaper and Cohen, and a big cash payout in exchange for his resignation. Now what does Cohen say about all this? Well, he told the NYT, quote, I'm the only person whose life is turned over because of this. Really? Big cash payout? Still regularly writing for the likes of The Spectator? Life turned over? Okay. But it's not just British print media that's been accused of closing ranks when it comes to misconduct allegations. ITV's shares were down by 20% this morning as the scandal involving one of its most high-profile faces rumbles on. Philip Schofield was, until last weekend, the longest-running presenter on This Morning, ITV's flagship breakfast show. But after weeks of tabloid rumours about backstage feuds, Schofield quit the show on the 20th of May. That was not the end of the matter, though. Because just six days later, Philip Schofield released a statement admitting to a, quote, unwise but not illegal affair with a much younger male employee at This Morning. Schofield had first met the young man at a theatre school talk when he was 15, and he later helped him secure an interview with ITV, where the man was hired, as a TV production assistant for the show that Schofield worked on. Now, Schofield said there was no romantic relationship between the two until the young man was 18 and began working on This Morning. But as well as blowing up Schofield's career, the fallout of ITV hasn't even begun to settle pressing questions about just how much bosses at the broadcaster knew about Schofield's relationship with the production assistant. These are yet to be answered. And on Monday, ITV released a statement saying they investigated rumours of the relationship but found no evidence of it beyond, quote, hearsay and rumour. But now aggrieved former This Morning presenters accusing ITV of a, quote, total cover-up. Eamon Holmes worked alongside Schofield on This Morning from 2006 until 2021. He's now appeared on GB News for a sit-down interview with Dan Wootton, who, we should note, is not exactly a bastion of rigorous and fact-checked journalism. But here's what Holmes had to say.
1: I was told that there was a thorough investigation after that, which involved the following. Philip, are you having a relationship with this guy? Nope. Hello, this guy. Are you having a relationship with Philip? Nope. Investigation over. Two questions. That, that's how we believe it was. But yet, there was an overriding, more than suspicion, that there was something going on. And to protect our brand and to protect our advertising and protect our Philip, let's just move this guy out of here. Let's promote him. And have Philip
2: come out as gay so that if he ever does come out in the future, at least he wasn't cheating on yeah. his wife.
1: It's a delusion. It's an illusion. The whole thing is. But isn't it a cover-up? Yes. It's a, it's a total cover-up. It's a total cover-up. Um, those in authority had to know, they had to know what was going on and they thought they would dodge a bullet with this, which they which they do mm. and they do constantly. Because with Schofield talking about those who speak out against him, namely me, Amanda Holden, mm. and you, you'll be included in the toxicity mm. that that goes on. Dr. Ange, too. Dr. range of course, as mm. well. And um, you simply sit there and think, no mate, you've had it all your way for too long.
0: Now, there's more than a hint of bitterness powering Eamon Holmes and something much, much darker powering Dan Wootton, who regularly peddles far-right conspiracy theories and hate on his GB News show. But regardless, Holmes' testimony alleges that ITV bosses were aware of their top presenter's inappropriate relationship with a colleague who was at least 30 years his junior. Holmes told Dan Wootton that tax records may prove what ITV management did or didn't know.
1: I didn't know, but I've subsequently found out from a very, very good source, because he would arrive much earlier in the morning mm. than I would for the programme, that he was delivered from Philip's London home, mm. uh, usually on a Friday morning, uh, because Thursday was playtime uh, when he and Philip would hit the town. And, uh, and then he obviously stayed overnight, and there are records to show that he was brought in the next day separately. In but cars the, paid for by ITV? In cars paid for by ITV. Well, so the
3: management
2: would have had to have known about that,
1: would uh, Unless Philip paid the bill separately, but it would still have to go through the accounts office mm. that they would have seen that and known that.
0: Now, Holmes himself claims he didn't know about Schofield's affair. All I'm
1: here to do is to speak for people who hadn't got a voice, people who were gagged either legally, or by actions that were that were taken within the production team. And I'm speaking up on behalf of them. Dan, my phone is overflowing with texts mm-hmm. and messages of Me people. Too. So, yeah, of people who are saying, Well done, Eamon, well for speaking to people who worked on the program. Mm-hmm. And I phone them back and I say, but it's not me that people want to hear from because it looks like people try and make out, you're bitter, you were complicit, you knew this, you knew that, why didn't you do something? I didn't do, I didn't know anything. I heard some rumors. Where were you gonna go to with these rumors? Who? You know, they everyone was team Philip and Holly.
0: Now, bitter as Eamon Holmes is, and as unreliable narrator as Dan Wooten is, these two stories, Philip Schofield and Nick Cohen, are potentially the start of a much wider conversation about sexual misconduct in British media, one that we haven't really seen take place on the same scale that it has in America. British media is a closed members club, and it does matter that the biggest morning breakfast show is presented by somebody who might be using his platform and the power that he wields to have a very inappropriate relationship and get jobs for somebody that he's involved with. It also matters that the star political columnist at one of the UK's biggest supposedly left-wing broadsheets, um, has been accused multiple times of sexual misconduct, and that those investigate the investigation into that sexual misconduct is only launched after someone takes it publicly to social media. Almost twenty years after the allegation, the incident that being alleged actually happens, um, and we're going to come back to the story in future. We're going to leave this segment for now, but this story is one that will rumble on and is far from over. Let us know what you think at home about british media and the closing of ranks when it comes to misconduct within it now we've got more stories for you coming up and for the rest of the show i will be joined by the wonderful sean Fay. sean
4: hi thank you for having me back um and yeah i am excited to get into the rest of the stories with you <laughs> we'd have you
0: back on every show we'd have you presenting i'd love you to present instead of me um but yeah let's get into the next story Today was deadline day, the day that the government was due to hand over Boris Johnson's unredacted WhatsApp messages, diaries and notebooks, wonder what doodles are in there, to the COVID inquiry. But guess what? They haven't delivered. The WhatsApp messages included all those exchanged with around 40 government figures between January 1st, 2020 and February 24 last year. These include Rishi Sunak, Liz Truss, Matt Hancock, Dominic Cummings and Simon Case, a rogues gallery. But in a notice released this morning, the inquiry said this. First, an extension was requested for compliance with the ruling until Monday, June 5th, 2023. Second, the inquiry was informed that the Cabinet Office does not have in its possession either Mr Johnson's WhatsApp messages or Mr Johnson's notebooks as sought in the original Section 21 notice. The chair rejected the request for an extension of time to June 5th, 2023, but granted a short extension to 4pm on Thursday, June 1st, 2023. Heather Hallett, who is chairing the inquiry, is not happy and has made additional demands on the cabinet office. And if the cabinet office continues to say that it doesn't have the documents by Thursday's deadline, they'll have to produce a sworn witness statement by a senior civil servant containing a list of all the steps they've taken to get hold of the documents They'll also have to submit all of their correspondence with Johnson and they'll have to say whether they've ever had the documents in their possession and if they did, why they don't any longer. Alec is clearly not here to play and it's no wonder she's mad. The government has continually tried to block her, first by redacting other documents they've already handed over. They described the passages that were removed as unambiguously irrelevant. But Hallett didn't agree, rightly arguing that it's for her and not civil servants to decide what's relevant. And now, this new battle with the possibility of a court case if the government doesn't comply by the new deadline. In a further twist to this already tangled tale, Boris Johnson has said he has no problem with the government handing over his materials. His spokesperson told The Times this Mr. Johnson has no objection to disclosing material to the inquiry. He has done so and will continue to do so. The decision to challenge the Inquiry's position on redactions is for the Cabinet Office. Sure. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak was also asked why Johnson's documents weren't being given to the Inquiry. Well, I
2: think it's really important that we learn the lessons of Covid and that's why the Inquiry was established. And we want to make sure that whatever lessons there are to be learned are learned and we do that in a spirit of transparency and and candour. The government has cooperated with the inquiry. Tens of thousands of documents have been handed over. And with regard to the specific question at the moment, the government's carefully considering its position, but it's confident in the approach that it's taken.
4: Are you prepared to get into a legal battle with a public inquiry? Some senior legal figures think you'll lose that fight.
2: Again, not a comment on the speculation, but we are carefully considering next steps and the government is confident in its position.
4: Are you saying that it should be up to ministers to decide what documents are looked at by the inquiry, not the independent judge in charge of it?
2: Uh, Again, government's handed over tens and tens of thousands of documents in a spirit of candor and transparency, because it is important that we learn the lessons of COVID. With regard to the particular question at the moment, we're carefully considering next steps, but the government is confident in its position. So
4: you might not hand over that material
2: that they're asking for then? Uh, again, as I said, government is considering next steps carefully, uh, but has been confident in its position and has handed over tens of thousands of documents Not
0: all today. the documents that
2: they've asked Tens of thousands of documents today in a spirit of candour and transparency, because it's important that we learn the lessons from COVID. And again, carefully considering next steps.
0: Do you think the government is carefully considering their next steps. I'm starting to think that Sunak has a little bit of a tell, actually, which is a direct correlation between how robotic he is and how dishonest he's being. Labour peer, Lord Faulkner, also wasn't impressed. He appeared on Sky News with this reaction to the government's position.
5: The country is entitled to know what was going on with the Prime Minister whilst he was making these decisions which had such an effect on all of our lives. It's a rum-do, though, when um, an inquiry that has been set up by a former Prime Minister to look into the global COVID pandemic as it relates to the UK is not given all of the information that it needs and then is threatening to sue. My goodness, what's going to happen? It is, I mean, you've put it quite mildly, if I may. It's a rum-do that the government who appointed Baroness Hallett, who is a very respected judge, but the... Government can't complain about it because they appointed her. She says and she's, she says she needs this to look into how it went during that period. And she says, uh, and they say, no, I'm afraid you can't have it. And they say, well, we've given 55,000 documents already. People often say that when they're trying to cover something up. Look at all this material I've given you. And they avoid giving the key material because the key material, I'm pretty sure, is what these ministers were saying to each other in making decisions on WhatsApp. I've got no problem with them making decisions by communicating on WhatsApp, because it was very urgent. But that's where the key material is, I suspect.
0: Deputy Labour leader Angela Rayner has also chimed in, saying this about the government's sneakiness. The fact that the COVID inquiry has invoked legal powers to compel the handover of crucial documents in the face of legal battles and delaying tactics shows this is a government with much to hide. It now appears that vital evidence has gone missing. It must be found and handed over as requested if the whiff of a cover-up is to be avoided and bereaved families are to get the answers they deserve. It is for the COVID inquiry itself, rather than the conservative ministers, to decide what is and is not relevant material for its investigation. And this interference only serves to undermine the inquiry's crucial job of getting to the truth. I'm going to end with this withering assessment of the situation published in a Times editorial. Although Mr Johnson's reputation is beyond salvaging, an unredacted release of ministerial chat may yet send others to the scrapyard. A trawl of the thousands of messages flying between him and some 40 of his lieutenants, including the current Prime Minister, the former Prime Minister Liz Truss, and Simon Case, the Cabinet Secretary, over a period of two years, is unlikely to leave everyone unscathed. This will send a chill through anyone in power at the beginning of the pandemic who was otherwise engaged as the country slid into the most serious public emergency since the war. Mr. Johnson's allies say he has no objection in principle to disclosure, but is awaiting new lawyers after sacking his government ones for for alerting police to potential lockdown violations by him. Meanwhile, others may be happy to use him as a shield, hoping that what went on WhatsApp stays on WhatsApp. Love the little uh, reference to the war the only war that ever matters in Britain. Sean, will we ever know the truth of what was happening in government during COVID or will it remain on WhatsApp?
4: (laughs) I mean, as someone that like uh, used to be a lawyer and remembers disclosure exercises, I mean, strictly speaking, English courts and inquiries do have quite like wide ranging powers. um, And it would you would hope that, like, I mean, I don't, I don't really think it's possible for them to dis- delete all evidence um, recorded on all relevant phones. But what is clear is um, there is a, a deliberate intention here to delay. I think um, there may be an attention, uh, you know, a hope that they can disappear evidence. I don't know, um, but certainly, I think what is sort of egregious about this is the waste of time, money, the fact that if the inquiry has to use legal powers in order to kind of enforce disclosure, that then it's using lawyers and those legal costs are racking up and who's footing that bill. Um, and, uh, so there's both the sort of egregious, um, waste of time, resources, and money, um, yet again by the Tories and, um, and government ministers, both, um, present and former. And also I worry really that this may, as, as inquiries tend to do, lurch on to a point where when we do find out anything of no, most of the people who are sort of culpable, um, have fallen from grace or sort of uh, managed to sort of fall out of power anyway because of the decline and, and decay within the Tory party anyway. So all these people will just walk off scot-free and we'll have, you know, potentially some kind of inquiry summary that says, you know, well, there was wide spread hypocrisy, failings, um, perhaps even breaches of the government's own rules and policies um, during COVID. And we'll be like, well, thanks for letting us know it's irrelevant now. <laughs> these people are all just going back to their country mansions. Yeah.
0: Country mansions indeed, and we'll find out if Boris Johnson invited many people to his country mansion soon enough. Let's go to our next story. Just before we get started, I do need to point out that it contains some graphic descriptions of torture and violence. Throughout the 1980s, the British Army had a spy operating right in the heart of the IRA, codenamed Steakknife. He was an agent of the British state who got away literally with murder, having been linked to over 20 killings. His identity has always been a closely guarded secret. But one of the chief candidates was this man. Freddy Scapaticci, who died in April, has long been suspected of being the mysterious steak knife. As the IRA's chief spycatcher, he worked in their internal security unit, also known as the, quote, nutting squad. Why? Because after interrogating and torturing suspected police informers, they were shot in the head, or the nut, before their bodies were dumped. Now, Freddy Scapaticci always denied having any role in the killings, but it's now emerged that he admitted to murdering at least one man, a fact uncovered by the BBC while making a documentary about Scapaticci's activities. This man is Sandy Lynch. He was very much not murdered, but he was a police informer working within the IRA, and Freddy Scapaticci was in charge of his interrogation. How do we know this? Because unlike other informers, Lynch survived the interrogation after police raided the house where he was being held. Later, he gave a deposition before entering a protection programme. That document has only recently come to light. And in this video, an actor is reading Lynch's words.
6: I belonged to the provisional Irish Republican army. The unit was under control of the Belfast Brigade. Sean Maguire was second in command. I entered the house. Maguire was walking behind me. I went up the stairs and someone was behind me. Someone who I believed was Scappaticchi. We entered a room at the top of the stairs. Maguire and I were talking. The room was in darkness. I felt a hand on the back of my head and I was pushed down onto a bed and I heard a voice saying, IRA security.
0: Lynch was stripped naked, blindfolded and tied up. Here's some more of
6: his words. I was searched from head to foot. And I felt something, which I believed to be a metal detector, going over my body. And I heard a voice. Scappaticci said, this thing was going haywire. He said, the cons wired to fuck.
0: There were others in the room, and they threatened Lynch for over an hour. But then Scappaticci took over.
6: He said, do you know who I am, Sandy? I said, yes. He said, you know me, but I don't give two fucks because where you're going you'll not be telling no one. When he was speaking to me, he stood with his elbows on my shoulders and his chin on my head. He was very aggressive. He said that if he has his way, I would get a jab in the arse and wake up in God's country. He said that I would wake up hung upside down in a cow shed and that he would talk to me the way that he wanted to talk to me. That he would skin me alive and that no one would hear me squealing. He mentioned my wife. He told me that she would be depressed when she had to come down and identify me. And that I would have no face, because he would make sure that I would have no face. He tapped me two or three times on the back of my head and said, you'll get it right there. He said like that bastard Fenton. He said his people could only identify him by his jewelry because he had been shot in the back of the head and he had no face. He said that he had done it.
0: Joe Fenton was a suspected police informer who was shot dead after interrogation in a West Belfast house. Until now, no one has ever been identified as his killer. But to add to that Sandy Lynch testimony, Brendan Hughes, the former commander of the Belfast Brigade of the IRA, said on record he thought Fenton had been killed by, quote, the person in the IRA who was handling him, a.k.a. his police informer colleague. And after the raid that saved Sandy Lynch's life, the police discovered Scapatici's fingerprint on a bug-detecting device. But by the time he was arrested, he had already put together a false alibi and was released without charge. Kevin Winters was Scapatici's solicitor at the time. He now represents the families of people killed by the
3: IRA internal security unit. I represented Fred Scappaticcia. There was an allegation that he was connected to the house via a fingerprint or fingerprints I can't remember and uh, he gave a prepared statement which in itself was unusual for anyone connected to the IRA to make statements in Castlereagh Holding Center and secondly he was released without charge at that time I was relatively inexperienced I didn't see anything particularly unusual Other than that, that was the system working its way through. Police took a view that there was insufficient evidence to prosecute. On reflection, years later, I have to seriously question that decision. Um, On the face of it, there was probably sufficient evidence to charge him, prosecute him and remand him into custody. That didn't happen. We know now why that didn't happen.
0: And in a nutshell, why?
3: Because he was an agent.
0: After that arrest, Scapatici's influence within the IRA began to wane. As someone who knew literally where the bodies were buried, a discarded spy catcher would normally face execution by the IRA, but somehow Scappaticci did not meet that fate. Instead, he was allowed to leave the IRA. Anthony McIntyre, a former IRA prisoner, has a theory about why he got
3: this special treatment. The IRA leadership's Reason for not killing Freddie Scott, not executing Freddie Scapatici back in 1990, uh, in my view, was a result of a need to save their own skin. The IRA were keenly aware that every interaction they had with Freddie Scapatici, every order they give to kill, every order they give to kidnap, every order they give to interrogate or torture. Freddie Scappaticci had passed that on to the British. And also that Freddie may have recorded this and that they were in deep, serious trouble.
0: So we have a situation where Scappaticci escaped punishment from both the British state, who he was working for, and the IRA, who was potentially working for. And... That's because both have a vested interest in keeping the link between State Knife and Scapatici a secret. The British state cannot admit that one of their agents was free to murder people in exchange for information, and sometimes murdering people to prevent his identity being revealed, and that it allowed these preventable kill- killings to go ahead. And the IRA can't risk exposing still living leadership as having ordered those killings. Operation Canova is a multi-million pound investigation into state knife activities. It's been running since 2016, but the report is due to be released this year. And it's currently being security checked by the Department of Defence. But when it comes out, we may finally know just how deeply involved the British state was in the killing of Northern Irish informers. And whether it occasionally sped up that process or brought it about in the first place. Why is it, I wonder, 2023, Sean, and the British state's involvement in the troubles is still so obscured.
4: I think the honest answer to that question is that there has been um, a deliberate and long term right wing institutional commitment to um, obscuring it on purpose. Uh, yeah. Um, in in the UK. I mean, I think it's uh, it's something that we've seen really. I mean, if you think about how difficult um, the Bloody Sunday The truth about Bloody Sunday was um, to 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 be uncovered, and it's still ongoing, right? Like the 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 delays there have been. Not only were there two inquiries, and ultimately the Savile inquiry, which um, sort of unearthed the culpability of the British state in the Bloody Bloody Sunday massacre, but then the prosecutions. Uh, and the prosecution of Soldier F and about the amount of delays, the attempts. The other thing to mention here is that which is um, still likely to go through is the legacy bill, um, the Northern Ireland Troubles Legacy Bill, which is a, a bill um, going through Parliament, again, part of a, a conservative right wing long term um, for campaign, lobbying campaign uh, that will essentially cease all criminal and civil uh, proceedings and inquiries relating to the troubles, um, and instead have a, re- a review procedure by a new agency. It's been criticised by the United Nations. It's been criticised by Amnesty International. It's been criticised by the by political parties in Northern Ireland and by the government of the Republic of Ireland. Like everyone, apart from uh, the British government, hate it, <laughs> and um, and it, you know claim that it violates potentially human rights. It violates the rule of law. It replaces due process with this kind of. Slim down procedure and the one that can potentially grant amnesty to um, both paramilitary and British state actors who may, you know, be involved in various crimes up to and including torture and murder. Um, so there is a real commitment ongoing to, uh, yet again, cover up, institutional cover up and, and obfuscation of the history of the Troubles. And I think also more broadly, it's worth saying that in the UK specifically, there is very little political education um, about the troubles and the history of Northern Ireland. I think it's something that um, our media, certainly our education system, is very um weak on. And so I think perhaps many people, um, even on the left in the UK, English people, um, just simply aren't aware of the history of collusion um by the British state in um in crimes. during the troubles. And I think the reason for all this, um, finally, what this all points towards, the reason for this um, deliberate, um, I guess, yeah, obfuscation of the British state's role is that the British state potentially here has... um, Acted in unlawful ways, in ways that potentially violate human rights, um, in in very violent ways, and that doesn't suit the narrative that has even you know even since the pre peace process has been perpetuated, which is that um, there's a strict binary of the IRA were terrorists and violent, and the British state was a legitimate actor, um, when in fact. Uh, it's clear that the british state has some serious questions to answer in the matter of human rights here and um and that, that perhaps theres um some revision to be done on that account of the troubles that um seeks only to re-emphasize the um i guess, in nature of the british state and its behavior which of course you know is the in, the establishment in the uk is very invested in maintaining the legitimacy of the british state for because um it intends to continue to wield its power um so i think there is a, a widespread establishment intention of keeping as much under wraps about the history of the troubles and the british state's role as possible
0: i've been thinking quite a lot recently about an encounter i had Uh, a few weeks ago where me and my friend were stood on the tube platform waiting waiting to get a train and we were talking about the troubles and, you know, talking about for about 10 minutes and this girl comes over, this Irish girl, and she says, I can't believe, I'm sorry, I just had to come over and talk to you because I've never heard two English people talking about the troubles before. And she was so shocked that we actually knew something something about what had happened. Um, And she was like, you know where did you start learning about this how did you hear about the troubles and we had to explain that no it was not in school and it was actually because shamefully we had made friends who made us personally interested in the history of Ireland and Northern Ireland and what the British state had done there but it is such a obscured part of history as you say Sean and I think that has a lot to do also about the struggles that were in line with Ireland and the apartheid that happened in Ireland you look at Ireland and the way they're Uh, So many Irish, you know, allied with the likes of Palestine or the South African anti-apartheid movement. And you understand even more why the British state might not want those sort of politics and the ease of that politics, that politics being the norm, something that people in England learn about and know about. Let's move on to our next story. Just Top Oil's protests attract a lot of attention. A lot of attention, and boy, do we like talking about it on Navara Media. But a lot of that attention isn't exactly positive. In recent days, they've dumped powder on a garden at the Chelsea Flower Show, leading to squeals of outrage from the posh attendees. And on Saturday, they also stormed the field at Twickenham, disrupting the final of the rugby premiership. That also caused its audience, which has a large crossover with the Chelsea Flower Show, I would say, aka posh, to pelt them with booze and Beer. I wouldn't bother throwing your beer at Twickenham. Do you know how much that costs? But now they found a new set of enemies. The North London Liberals. Apparently these aren't posh people too. Okay. Let's take a look. Everyone's just trying to go back their business, to go back
1: their day. And
3: are all, all of them. You might feel better about yourself.
1: But all you do
3: because everyone hates you. I'm a liberal. I always go to liberal. I'm a cyclist. And I live in North that. If I, if I hate you, yes, like
2: you. And you all feel better about yourself, but you're hurting the cause. You feel better, but you're hurting the cause. You're hurting the, good, the green cause. So you feel good about yourself, but you're not helping. <laughs>
0: Is he right? First of all, people in the comments, do you think this man is right? This man who's a liberal, has always voted Labour and knows lots about the green cause in his very tight lycra. Sean, do you
4: think he's right? I'll just stop oil not helping the cause. This is the thing, even the terms, right, of the question, what does helping the cause mean? We are like, what they are demonstrating against is an emergency, an emergency for humanity, for... Um, for certainly for the global south, before anyone else, and I think it's worth saying that. But for for this, us as a species, it is an, a true emergency. And I think saying hurting the cause, the cause is that we are heading towards almost certain doom, um, impending um, societal shifts leading potentially towards societal collapse. It's that level of alarm. Something that is a, essentially we are already betraying future generations. If anyone watching has a a uh, child, um, you know what 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 we collectively as society are doing is handing them a future that is going to be full of misery and pain. And I think there is, you know, the way that Just Stop Oil are protesting to me seems entire entirely commensurate with the threat. And the reality is is that there is not any um, movement throughout history, um, whether it's for civil rights, obviously, whether it's for um, uh yeah ecological and, and climate uh rights for racial justice whatever there is no movement throughout history that has really been that popular <laughs> um i mean like disruption civil disobedience is intended you know to piss people off basically and um there's something wrong if you're not so to me the argument about whether or not people are hugely happy is not the point the point is that the people who are doing this are heroes we will look back and um, and I honestly think that future generations will be like, why were more people not in just stop oil? (laughs) Um, So yeah, I think, whether or not they're hurting or harming the cause. The cause is not a matter of winning people over. It's not something like, can you come along and vote this way in a referendum? It's a matter of this is an emergency and we need people, a very small, powerful elite to take notice. And we need to create disturbances that keep this in the news cycle and keep people having an appropriate sense of panic.
0: So the thing I think about law is when people are trying to talk about just up oil, they list their own credentials, such as that man being like, I'm a liberal. I'm a liberal. Where do you think that impulse comes from? Why do you, does he think the people, you know, doing a just stop oil protest will give a single shit that he's a liberal or not?
4: Isn't that the same old, like, you know, complaining about, um, I don't know, anything to do with racial equality and pointing, saying, "I've got black friends," you know, I'm a transphobe, but I'm not a transphobe. I'm a feminist. I mean, I think it's just the same old thing, isn't it? Is that before you know, it's it's uncomfortable. Most people who don't are never going to be like. I'm actually bigoted, or actually, I'm I'm espousing a reactionary opinion here. Is that you? There has to be a sort of belief, really, that um, in fact, um, what you're doing is um, is establishing yourself as uh, the well to be in a position to adjudicate on what the excesses of protest are. Um, and so, I just think it's that. I just think it's a sort of psychological soothing mechanism for the person saying it, to be honest. And um, it's almost a cliche, isn't it?
0: Something else I think about when it comes to climate activism in particular is there's, I think there's a large amount of guilt involved from those onlooking. You know, there's a fear and guilt that means that we often don't want to address what's happening to the climate head on. We do literally want to keep our head in the sands. I think when, you know, you've got a cyclist who sees just stop oil protests, then all of that guilt and fear instead is expressed onto them. I've been thinking a lot about the way that we treat climate protesters, um, or just protesters in general, like the shooting the messenger the, ag- the absolute aggression that you see now leveled against protesters. We had that video of someone beating up a just-a-board bracelet the other day. Someone I know, though, who was, in- who was involved in a deportation protest. People came up and kicked them. It, it's, it does seem like there is heightened aggression around at the moment. But then if you look through history, I suppose that's not really a huge departure. But it's maybe the fact that we capture it all on camera now in video and real time means that we can kind of put all these incidents together um i'm gonna say thank you now sean this is a short show today short and sweet thank you very much for your contributions this evening
4: no thank you for having me it was certainly nice and varied but with this uh, overarching theme of cover-ups and people lying <laughs> and hiding things so um i'm glad <laughs> to get into it with you moya
0: <laughs> we did talk about a lot of cover-ups. Hopefully, tomorrow we'll be talking about some more revelations. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We will see you again tomorrow at six PM. You have been watching Navara Media. Remember to redact your WhatsApps. Good night.
2: This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.